Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I am one half of one of you games, and I design tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig. Hi, Craig. Hi, Jess. I'm Craig. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I also design tabletop role-playing games. And I want to point out something, and thank you, Jess, for doing this, um, that I've enjoyed. I think you've been doing it right from the, from the get-go, or, or at least for many episodes now, is that you don't say welcome to the show. You say welcome back. Yes. which I really like <laughs> because it runs it, it it assumes that we have a returning listenership which even if we don't I like to think we do I really hope we do uh and I I know that our guest uh is is returning as well so hello starshine hi thank you for having me back it's the first time that's ever happened usually, <laughs> usually I'm told never to return so <laughs> I find that difficult to believe <laughs> That's how it starts. Next, you know, I'm living in your walls. It's very awkward. Oh, yeah. I, w- I was wondering <laughs> what the noise was, honestly. Uh, but thank you for keeping it down after 8 p.m. That's been very kind of you. <laughs> scratch, scratch, scratch. <laughs> uh, Starshine, tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm Starshine. I am a tabletop game designer. Surprise, surprise. Well, I've been accused of making tabletop role playing games. So I will not confirm or deny this fact. <laughs> yeah, I make games. I also make D&D content. I'm a writer, visual artist, and a load of other stuff. I do too much. <laughs> and that's how you know you're a game designer. Too many hats, yes. yes especially when you're indie. And, and one of our topics on the list, at some point somebody's going to pick it, is the many hats of the publisher, which is going to be quite the experience when we talk about those. But go ahead. What was the question? I'm oh, sorry. I was going to ask what we're doing today. Oh, what well, we today... About? Today, we're going to talk about uh, developing recurring themes in, um, in your game that you're GMing. And this is a heady topic that we're going to try to compress into a half an hour. Um, there's a lot of possibilities of where we can go with all of this. I'm sure we all have thoughts on things that we've done in the past and things that um, we can give as advice that and, and GMs can use as uh, inspiration. But uh, I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say that once you get past the adventure game aspect that many games are, many RPGs are, where you're, you've got, you know, a goal, you've got rules, you're going to, you know, utilize character sheet, dice, cards, whatever, tokens, points, you're going to use the rules and you're going to, uh, you know, uh, achieve some goals that we're also telling these stories and there's thematic elements that can be woven through the stories and woven through the genre, woven through, um, you know, particular games have, you know, kind of lean heavily toward certain thematic elements um, being uh, recurring in the story. So let's just talk about uh, that for a little bit, like how to do all that kind of fun stuff and make players um, help, I guess, not so much make players, but help players to enjoy a story that has um, these sort of recurring themes. I I love themes as an English teacher. That's like the one thing that I try to get my students to learn because a theme, having a good theme in a story can make the story so much more enjoyable. Um, I actually, I think it's a prerequisite to be a story, to have some sort of lesson come out of it. Otherwise you are just telling an anecdote, but uh, a theme for definition um, is it's not a moral of the story, uh, but it is, it's a lesson about life or so, it's something the author is stating about the world, about humanity, about the, about whatever. And that is kind of where it's tricky for, for games because there isn't 
necessarily an author. There are a lot of authors. And you're developing this thing as you go instead of doing writing a book or a story where there are multiple, like you're going through the process of writing and rewriting and editing. There, there isn't that process. Um, so maybe kind of a better way to think about it is kind of, a, let me, a watered down version of what a theme is, which would be a motif, um, these, or a topic, these things that do come up over and over again. Um, and from that, your players will be able to, to get those themes and you'll be able to start finding those themes. So just kind of starting with like what I kind of define, you know, what that, what that means. Uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's a cool literary thing that definitely does happen in games and uh it, but it works differently than in than in a regular piece of traditional literature i think i think you'll see a lot with um games because i think most people who are running games probably are using themes already you just don't know how to pick them out to say you're doing them like if you play with the dm for enough times you'll definitely see those recurring motifs even if they don't think they're doing them mm-hmm. i think we're all kind of guilty of slipping our own things into what we make uh, so I do I think you're probably already doing them if you don't know but I like it's one of the best ways to start is by splitting themes because you sort of get your major themes and your minor themes so I'm um, famously and if you've ever been around lit you get like sort of man versus nature man versus god those are your base themes and you up to like smaller recurring motifs and all this so just one of the best ways to start doing that is to look at other media and just break it down and look, and then you can apply that to your own work. Yeah. Like bringing up the conflict is, is, is a really good way to like find that. Cause conflict is so directly related to theme. Like what you're saying, man versus God, man versus nature, man versus man thinking about uh, so many of our games are structured around conflicts, multiple conflicts. Uh, sometimes the game is only conflicts. You're just getting into battle after battle. Uh, it depends on the game. Uh, but but also there are the internal conflicts too. So examining the patterns there, because that's what you're doing when you're finding a theme. You're looking for the patterns. So if you were, I, I love that piece of that suggestion that you gave Starshine uh, with going into other media and looking for themes. Start with the conflict, look at the characters and and look at the, re- the recurring images and things just discovering those patterns, which is something that we naturally do. That's a human thing. We love patterns. And from those patterns, you can start to extrapolate. Uh, I hope no one is tuning out right now who hated literature in English, but I, <laughs> I like, I elite, like that is like the skill. That's the reading skill. How do you do that? So how, what, what are some suggestions you, you have, some specific suggestions you have for when you are looking at media or maybe you are examining your own game? Where do you look? Honestly, just being, yes, yeah, so the conflict is the central thing. I think that's sort of, if you're going to start working on a thing, you start with that conflict and what it is. And then sort of, I would just reread things and try and be open-minded because, again, you'll there's stuff you'll never notice about your own writing. And sometimes people will point things out to you. I had it a couple of months ago where someone was like, you write a lot of romance. And I've always said I'm a horror writer. And I went back and was like, no, no, by wait. 70% of my work is romance. <laughs> would never have said that, but I guess it is. And then they go back like, oh, yeah, no, I can see how that kind of went from where I was to where I am now. And just honestly, stuff like um, you can get sort of uh, annotated or uh, what did you call it? Reading 
literature essays is a good way of looking at these things. Mm. They do break them down, usually with context, which is a big problem for a lot of people approaching, especially classical literature now, is that it's so devoid of context because, you know, I grew up around Shakespeare and you realize when you sort of read Shakespeare, half the themes are there, very clear. They just feel labyrinthine now because there's a weird in-joke here that you won't get unless you happen to know, uh, you know, this era of royal family gubbins or London, the London theatre, London theatre scene in like Shakespeare's time. Willie the Shake was writing for his patrons. He was putting jokes and, and, and thematic elements in there that would resonate with the people who were paying him. And then he was putting in the baser stuff that would appeal to the, to the commoners. Um, you know, Falstaff is just one big recurring series of themes as, as he develops as a character from being kind of the drunkard lout that everybody loves. And that's, you know, like, what, uh, like when does, like, you know, thematically in Shakespeare, you might, across Falstaff as a character, you might think, well, when does that end? Like when he, he changes, like there's comes a point where he stops being that because he pops up in multiple plays and he stops being that because he kind of grows out of it. Um, and so you see the change in the character. And I think thematically, th themes are things that um, that recur through, like it's easy, it, I, I find it easiest to, to hit on things that I want to focus on when I look at similar media, especially if there's a lot of it and I can see like, oh, this type of thing pops up in this story over and over. Not to t get into the designy side of thing, but just as an example, when I, when I designed Nowhereville, it's in large part inspired by Stephen King stories. And everybody who's read Stephen King stories kind of knows what a Stephen King story feels like. But there are thematic elements that play through that come up in a lot of his, of, of, of his stories, which, you know, things like everything has a price. There's, there's heroes that are flawed. There are uh, monsters that are both right out in plain sight and hidden. And, and what are the differences between them? And what happens when the monster that's hidden reveals themselves and, 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 you know, making a stand for good and the consequences that come with that. These are things that you can instill in a story. Um, you know, like making a stand for good and the consequences of that thing is a great thematic element for any story that you're telling that's heroic or where, where the characters are doing some sort of um, heroic thing where they're saving the town, the kingdom, the, 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 the galaxy, whatever. And pinpointing those things in, in the overall genre of what your game is in is, is how you, you, you can pick out a few of those things that you can just kind of keep coming back to. Like if you're doing a supers game, like there's a plethora of, of, of media to draw upon. Just look at Marvel stuff and think, okay, well, you know, a lot of Marvel stuff. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of political commentary on, um, on race and gender and L LGBTQ issues and colonization in some place, you know, in some parts of it. And, and so like, you know, if you're running a supers game, like having political stances that are kind of part of the story, not to, you know, create conflict amongst players who might have slightly different political views, but to, to talk about like, you know, when you have a group of uh, mutants who are oppressed by the government and the government wants to register them, that's, that's oppression, that's political in its, in its nature. And it's, it's a thematic thing that runs through X-Men and through a lot of other, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 what do you call it? The, uh, um, the Accords. What's the name of the Accords in the MCU? Sokovia. <laughs> the Covia Accords. Where the government says, whoa, enough of that, super people. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to put a leash on all of you. Um, 
and that power and, and taking a stand on that and what the consequences of those of taking that stand are getting back to that theme, like, you know, Tony uh, Stark and, and Steve Rogers take two different stands. And it creates interesting conflict that recurs over the course of multiple uh, episodes, so to speak, of the of the MCU movies. Um, so you can build that sort of thing, like whatever game you're playing, look at the other media. Sometimes it might be really well defined in the game, like the, the, the game designer might have actually described like very clearly, like these are some of the central themes that might be useful in this game. But, or you can just look at like other media that are of that genre for and the feel that you're looking for. Um, whether yeah. it's utopian, dystopian, gritty, um, you know, you know, more playful, whatever, the, whatever it is you're looking for, you can find the, the thematic elements that you can you know, reuse. You know, Harry Potter stories have a very different feel from Lord of the Rings stories, but they're both fantasy. So what kind of fantasy are you running? Yeah, you hit on you hit on some of the other elements there, too, of, of finding the, like genre helps helps you identify theme characterization and and the arc of a character can help you define themes and uh the tone as well of the story helps define the theme too um all of those are things like look for those within your game and start to tease them out it takes some close reading like you actually have to sit back and and think about what's going on maybe maybe it requires taking notes (laughs) looking at those notes and by maybe i mean it does it it does (laughs) And you might, we've, we've talked about this sort of thing before too, with when you're trying stuff out with the players, they might not, your players might not latch on to a particular theme. It might not resonate for them. It might not be something that they're interested in pursuing. So you can set that one aside and kind of, you know, introduce another thing. And when they really get interested and involved in that, and that starts to matter to them, that's the one that you start to recur in every few, you know, every few sessions or have like a big arc that hinges on that. Uh, whatever that particular theme is, you know, the idea that secrets destroy thing, are the characters keeping secrets from each other? You know, that's a, that's a human nature. That's a human nature thing. I think a lot of themes do boil down to like what it is to be human. Um, you know, and what are, what are the, I love the word consequences, like, you know, consequences are always like thema- almost all the time. If you can think of a thematic thing, like it's like, okay. And what are the consequences of that? Like what ultimately comes out of that um, is, is uh is always something that you can latch onto. And some players will really get invested in those sorts of things. I think the thing about being flexible is very important because I said, it's not a book. So unfortunately that means you have other moving parts to play around with. So if something isn't working, you can't have like this strict, this is going to be exactly this that you can have when you're writing a book or writing a play. So being flexible. And sometimes if a theme isn't working, just kind of do it. Yeah, let it go. But also, don't be afraid to do a theme retroactively. Because mm. sometimes you walk into a theme and don't realize it till it later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I'm in, I'm in the middle of a really important thematic. I should have referenced this. Yeah, I should no, have like foreshadowed this. If something is resonating with players, <laughs> yeah. then yeah. And if, if they find that is working for them, go for it. And this is something that actually does happen in, in all sorts of written media. There are so many artists who have started something and then a new theme comes along later on. Long-running comics, to go back to it, is another really good one, especially a manga, because they tend to have one writer. So you can definitely track... Dragon Ball's a really good one for this. Mm-hmm. You can definitely track uh, Toriyama's opinions on violence and his own growth as Dragon Ball goes on, mm-hmm. because they start to touch more on, is this fight really worth it? And yes, if, if you have the time, and who does... 
to read the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you can do that. And so if you feel like, hey, this definitely is something that's resonating with my players and it's definitely true, m- move that into the spotlight. That's... I think... Oh, go on. No, no, no. You go. No, I feel right. I would say that, um, yeah, definitely one of the things you can do when starting it out is to have a thesis statement, however highbrow that sounds, of what mm-hmm. you want to say. I'm always reminded by one of my art history professors who was a, an amazing man, nearly got arrested for being a communist, so that's a whole story. But he basically said that all art has a thesis statement, even, even if that thesis statement is Batman is cool. It doesn't have to be, it's like when you're making one, you don't have to be highbrow. Don't think you have to give an essay on Proust and the dialectic. <laughs> you can just say, I think this is cool and I want you to think this is cool. So my aim is to make this feel cool. Mm-hmm. You know, or I like massive swords. So this game's going to have lots of really cool massive swords because I want you to come out of the game going, God, massive swords are cool. <laughs> you can, if you want, go to something higher, higher level and I would recommend it. I'm a pretentious artist. Of course I'm going to recommend it. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah. But don't feel like off the bat that we're asking you to go for your first DM session to present a scathing criticism of capitalism through the eyes of neo-Malthusian economics. It's fine to say, this is good versus evil with a bit of love conquers all. That's fine. We're not asking for revolutions every time you're on a game. Don't push yourself too hard and like end up out of your depth and be like, oh my God, I've got to sort of present this groundbreaking work. Yeah, there are two pitfalls that you could fall into when you do that. Like, number one, it's exhausting to do themes and art in that way. It's exhausting to play into that. If your care, if your players catch on, they're going to kind of, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're going to feel pressure to act within those bounds. They're going to be thinking about it, and you're going to be thinking about it a lot. That's a lot of mental work on top of the mental work that GMG game already is. And then the second pitfall is you might end up. If you're really, really trying to make a point and hammer at home, you might end up being really ham-fisted about it. And that it just when it doesn't feel authentic, your players aren't going to latch on and it's gonna feel silly and trite and and not great. But you can always take your silly little theme, swords are cool, massive swords are cool, and then you as the GM could throw some stuff in there to maybe make your players think a little bit. Maybe you can connect those massive swords to the idea of masculinity. There are all sorts of fun things you could play with in that realm. Uh, uh, there, there are all sorts of lenses you could throw on things, even on for the same theme. Um, you, can, you can throw on a, a, a Marxist lens, for example, if you wanted to examine how, how the systems of capital work in your game, you could throw on a feminist lens, you could throw on a queer lens. Those are all sorts of lenses you could switch through as you see fit and as your players see fit. Um, my favorite thing to do, though, is, is to see how my characters, how, how my players react to what I am throwing at them and use that for the themes because that shows you their internal conflict. If you start off your game in a high fantasy D&D type game and everyone is a low level character and their village gets burned down, let's say that all the characters react uh, by wanting to get revenge. Well, there you go. There's a theme that you can start getting into. Revenge. What does it mean? Or maybe they surprise you and they have a lot of emotion and grief over the loss of their hometown. 
well, there you go. There's another theme there. You can start playing into what does it mean to have loss? What does it mean to have grief? And just not necessarily making a statement about that, but providing opportunities and um, maybe NPCs that are also coping with similar types of loss or similar revenge fantasies. Or maybe they do something completely surprising and they take it as an opportunity to start anew. Well, there you go. There's another there's another theme of the adventure and uh, adventure and starting new. Let yourself kind of be guided by what your players are doing, as we've mentioned, what, what your players are doing, what they like. And don't necessarily track them into um, re- like if your idea about revenge is that revenge will ultimately lead to your moral uh, destruction. Uh, if you try to make them go down that lane, that might not be the lane that they want to go on to, but you could at least provide them opportunity to explore the topic of revenge. Let them, them, let their characters take revenge and then put, then put the situation, put the characters in situations where they have to deal with the repercussions of that. And does it degrade them morally or do they feel justified in the revenge that they took? Throw a mirror out there. There's another. There's another NPC out there who has gotten revenge. How has that impacted them? Or maybe they're enlisted to help somebody else get revenge on somebody. There are all sorts of things you could do to provide that same thing um, during their quest for revenge. Uh, the thing about ham being ham fisted is a big point. No mm-hmm. one likes being found out they're being preached to. Yes. Like if you if you ever sort of look at any sort of reviews, of you'll find preachy is always a bit of a is always a negative in reviews. And especially in D&D, you don't want to go through all the time. Like a movie, if it's a bit preachy, it's, it's 90 minutes, it's fine. But if you put all the effort into like going to a game like that, to find out that the GM is basically really heavily pushing their specific worldview, it will alienate players, but sort of really cycle around. Um, with those themes, do you remember your safety tools? Because not everyone is going to want to address certain themes in the game. Grief is an interesting theme, but if someone has had a recent passing, especially in the current time, there's a good chance they have. They might not want to handle that in that environment. So it's another thing about flexibility. You can have a theme on this is something, you know, as something you can let them explore, but just be open to if someone goes, you know what, this isn't the environment I want to handle this event and have a backup and have a way for that to be, okay, let's do something else. That is an excellent, excellent point. You should, like, that should be a question that you you ask during your session zero. Like, are there themes that you don't want to touch on? Maybe they don't. um, An actual play I'm listening to is talking about addiction. That is not going to be a topic everyone wants to explore in a game. It is a topic some people are going to want to explore in a game. You need to make sure that you get that out up front. And like you said, Starshine, be flexible. Uh, and I find myself thinking too about the, the remark made earlier um, about flashing back. Like you might, you might not be, you suddenly find yourself in the middle of a theme. Like you didn't plan to, but here you are. Like you, you run this game session and suddenly the characters, as you get to the cliffhanger at the end of this session, the characters are in the position that they, uh, in order to move forward, one of the ways that they can move forward is by making a significant sacrifice. And how much are you willing to sacrifice for the good? How much are you willing to put on the line yourself personally in that, that, that particular theme? Now, and you find yourself thinking, gee, I really wish I would have started to hit on the idea of making sacrifices earlier in the campaign. Well, you can, because just like writers go back and 
rewrite the earlier parts of the story or put a flashback right there in that chapter, you can go back and pick like, okay, here's a spot between these two adventures where the characters have this other little mini story. The players are going to know their characters are going to come out of it okay because they obviously live to see the next uh, segment of the story. But I can now you know, craft a story that's built around the character suddenly having to make decisions about sacrificing something of, of value to themselves um, or something about themselves, giving up on, you know, on giving up on a belief or giving up on uh, another person or giving up on finding something um, that's important to them. And you can reinforce that theme by doing the little flashback jump into it because suddenly, the, you know, you know that the players are really intrigued by like, what are, they're talking about like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Number one, it's latching onto something and giving them a little bit more of what they're interested in because they suddenly became very interested in making this decision about what this sacrifice, this big sacrifice is going to be. You've done a flashback that's going to build that and you've given them an extra week or however long to think about that big thing mm-hmm. um, and, and build the tension and, and allow them to have those discussions like outside of game where they might be emailing or talking on the phone or texting or whatever. Where they're like, you know, what, what are we going to do? Like, we we could defeat the big evil necromancer if we sacrifice half of, you know, half the characters give give their lives. Like, are we ready to say goodbye to our characters to to do that, or are we going to take the other road, which is more difficult? You know, whatever the the sacrifice possibly is. So, yeah, you find yourself suddenly in the middle of something thematic. You can always find a way to kind of bring it back in, or even just, you know, it can be as simple as asking the care asking the players, you know. Like, just shoot me an email in between this session and the next one and give me a paragraph or two on what your character thinks about this thing. Make the players think about the theme a little bit. Make them talk or at least give them the space to talk. Oh, I I love when my my players talk to each other in character. That's my, oh, oh, so good. Oh, Oh, yeah. As a GM, sit back, dinner and a show. It's great. (laughs) And with the respect, shows retool themselves all the time. Like a retool is done so often, especially these days, like, it test audio nowadays most films are mostly reshot after test audiences so if it's good enough for hollywood it's fine for you to do it you could too like maybe the yeah. maybe the campaign ends and you want to explore something a little bit further continue the story with some new yeah. characters new campaign yeah if you want or even if you're keeping that campaign just if you're seeing something's resonating then go well you know what we're doing this now mm-hmm. If Marvel can reshoot half their movie, then what's stopping you from being like, hey, this is... Because <laughs> sometimes the weirdest things resonate with people. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen like, the meme that always goes around, about, oh, the player's always attached to the goblin little man, kind of. And you, sort of when you dig into that meme a little bit, you realise it's probably because they're the most interesting thing in the room. Because they offer something to the players that's often much more naturalistic because it's that kind of spur of the moment thinking thing up versus the villain. So if players are resonating with your little man, then you can look at why are they resonating with him? Is it because it's the whole underdog? Because most of them, it's an underdog story. Like, hey, this is a little weak, this is a little weak. Then we're going to pick them up, carry them around like Tiny Tim and beat anyone who looks at them funny. <laughs> and you can say, that's definitely a theme of power versus powerlessness. So maybe between sessions you can sort of look at your story and go how do I work more of that in yeah I I love that I I I I think that's a great trope that you everyone loves the little goblin guy everyone loves the little goblin guy um I I, that that's a I'm glad that you brought up that particular (laughs) trope (laughs) 
and then connected it to a theme because I've never really thought about that thematically. Yeah, it's it's uh, I think, you know, it can easily be said for longtime gamers who have, you know, in their in their in their lives in the past have felt put upon, have felt like outsiders have felt small and powerless and everybody. And when it gets right down to it, even everybody's felt powerless darn near anybody. Everybody has felt powerless at some point or another. So like lifting up the little goblin guy <laughs> is, is always fun because it's like, Hey, I, the little goblin dude's not powerless anymore. I was thinking often when you see it's because does that happen because <laughs> you know, the DM is improvising them in that moment. So in that moment, they've got much more sort of connection to the players and what they're looking for. Because you are able to pick up on, you know, humans, we're great at picking up at random social goods without knowing them. So that's usually what effectively they're doing is they're coming up something on the fly, as opposed to when you were your planning, you had this other thing going on, but that hadn't, that wasn't with the players. That wasn't with the moving element. Because mm-hmm. players, you know, will always do what you don't want them to do. Because you can't, you know, it's herding cats effectively. <laughs> but in that moment, you are with them and you can immediately feed off and see what's getting a response. In the same way, to links to a whole other industry, stand-up comedians work. It's mm. cold reading and room reading, which we all do even if we don't know we're doing it. Then that's where that resonates. And then you can go back again. You said notes. Notes are so good for this kind of thing. Just to be able to, one, to remember what the hell you were doing. It's an awful memory. And then you can look and go, well, okay, so what was I doing in that moment? What kind of was I picking up on in the room, even if I wasn't totally aware I was doing it at the time? The, and the attachment to of, of what might essentially be an empty vessel that becomes a symbol for the characters. Again, another literary term that goes into themes. Um, so what, what meaning do you see them applying to what you might have thought was meaningless before? And yeah, reading, reading the room. Really good skill for a GM to have. Not a skill that I can teach you in a half hour on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it, it comes with time. You, you play enough, uh, you GM enough, you start, you get to know the players, you get to kind of know their cues and hints of like, okay, like, oh, they're, you know, they're all leaning forward in the table. They're all really interested in this thing. Nobody's asked to go, you know, take a break and grab a, a drink or use the bathroom right now. So, and it's, again, can, it's another of those things that you're, you are doing. Mm-hmm. It's not, you, you just don't have a way of putting it, sort of explaining it yet. Mm-hmm. Because again, humans, we're built to spot bold. We're built to spot all these sort of emotions. It's how we functioned as a group animal. So it, it's there. You just sort of learning to spot it and learning to spot when you're doing it is the trick. Exactly. And, and it takes time to not only get the habits down, but it also takes time in general to find a theme. You're never going to find a theme on page one. I mean, there might be there might be some hinting and foreshadowing that you didn't even know. It's going to take some time, some close reading, some attention, and some care to really tease it out. But it, I, I, I just love that. That's that's it's a great way to make a game feel meaningful and uh, connected and congruous i guess would be the best word it for makes that. All, it, it makes all the sec, all the sessions feel cohesive cohesive is the word it's i was actually one big for. story as opposed to a bunch of little stories yeah all right i love lit crit <laughs> yes we could talk about it all in a half hour no Put I, that to bed <laughs> <laughs> no the, the here's the number one hint get players who are artists and writers and just play with them they'll do it they'll do it for you it's fine <laughs> Steal the work of others. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pay homage. 
Um, <laughs> it's not stealing. You're honoring. Well, it's not nothing cool, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, our our game design topic is kind of tangentially related to themes. Craig, what is it? Oh, naming your game and divide, uh, kind of devising the cover or the, uh, you know, if, if it's a book, the cover or the, you know, leading image, if it's just kind of a digital thing that you, you call that the cover as well, but it has a slightly different kind of use and feel and you, there, there's slightly different rules to to creating one of those. But uh, yeah, I think that, you know, a na- the name of a game and, and what the cover tells you about the game often ties into kind of what the game is about, conceptual aspects of the game, and the f- potentially like kind of the themes of the game too, because you're going to be sort of presenting a genre or some sort of action or some sort of, uh, you know, relation characters involved in some, you know, doing something relationship oriented, like they're like, you know, uh, superhero books often have like you know the villains and the heroes clashing well that's telling you a theme of the game in that cover um and then the title of the game can also kind of convey those sorts of things so i have all sorts of thoughts about this 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 type of stuff um and i'll start off by saying the 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 rule is there is no great rule everybody i think comes up with a name for their game in a different way if you ask a hundred designers about each about one of their games they'll come up with a different story about how they came up with the name and why it's the right name for the game um there will be some um similarities between some of them but there will be some really wild outliers as well and and for games that are have really effective names have really great names um and the same thing goes for covers as far as what you're putting on the cover so let's dive in well the first game i ever made was called let's be grandma with the subtitle of Oh Me Oh My, It's Grandma Time. And the cover of it was a an MS Paint um, grandmother I doodled with a, a, a pentagram on her forehead. Um, and I feel like that just tells you everything, <laughs> everything you might where need to know I, about that game. Where can I buy this game immediately? It's free. It's available on DriveThruRPG and itch. You can find it at wannabegames.com. <laughs> It was the first game Alex and I ever made. It's it's very um it's very lasers and feelings, and uh, you play you play grandmothers doing grandma things like stealing uh, potato salad recipes or saving the president from assassination. That's my group sort for the next two months. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, sometimes um like that was an R.L. Stein moment for me. R.L. Stein came up with titles for his books before actually writing the stories. And that was kind of what we did with that game. Um, and then it, kind of the same sort of thing happened with my game Moonpunk, which tells you again, everything you need to know about the game. It, moon, we're on a moon and it's punk. There you go. But other than that, every other game I've ever made, I have struggled. I have labored to try to find a name for it. And, <laughs> and there are a lot of, there are a lot of, sucky ones that i've made in my time it is hard to do it is so hard to condense everything like because you want to try to capture as much of it as possible in this tiny little frame and your title cannot be 17 words long Uh, it can be slight disagreement especially in the indie space amongst the small creators who don't have like an immediately recognizable game title like Dungeons and Dragons everybody knows what Dungeons and Dragons is about you don't have to explain what it's about 
Um, but I make a game that nobody's ever heard of before. The subtitle, um, I've heard retailers say, that is great. Subtitles are great. Having a little extra blurb of Capers, a superpowered game of gangsters in the Roaring Twenties. Capers doesn't mean much. It has three meanings in the game. It's like a multi-layered name for the for the game. But the, the subtitles really tells you what it's about. So you've got that before you even get to the back cover and the, you know, the blurb and the description that are on the back cover. But I've, I've come to find that there's the titles for me that I, th- I personally like the most that I think are the best. While there is a, while I do have a soft spot for the title that is like, this is clearly just like, the title just says what the game is. Like, it's really obvious, like Dungeons and Dragons, you go in Dungeons and you fight dragons. It's really straightforward. But then the titles that have double and triple meanings I, I like because they they tell me so much more about the game. They also tell me that the designer put a little extra care into coming up with just the right title. Amongst the more popular indie titles right now, Masks mm. is a great double meaning game title. Um, masks as in superheroes wear masks, but also you're a teen superhero. So you're putting on a lot of masks and trying on a lot of different faces and figuring out who you are. Um, and then the game mechanics also have to do with like changing kind of who you are as you go. Um, so great title. Dread, one meaning, tells you exactly what the game is about, of what the mechanic at least works. You know, it, it tells you what the game is about. It tells you it's a horror game and it tells you that there's dread involved. There's like that feeling of, oh. um, and, then the t- and then the cover is, is stark and simple and, and kind of eye-catching. Well, then you have games like Morkborg. <laughs> like, what the hell is that? It's, it's, it's wild. It's weird. And then you open the game and it is kind of wild and weird but it but mork and borg don't necessarily mean anything to a lot of people but interestingly if you look at mork borg it has two really good advantages is that one nothing else sounds quite like it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. two if you look how they how they purposely use the umlaut it still calls back to those kind of queen's reich and (laughs) mid-80s power metal which is what the game is heavily based on Mm -hmm. So it does work on that level. Because I think, um, so I'm, oh, come on. No, no, go. I'm unfortunately a fan of the Sailor Moon episode naming format. So five sentences long of like question, then answer. Hence why I have a game called You Have One Ability, the ability to fuck this up. But I think it's interesting because <laughs> my day job, where I'm a lot less cooler, is working on my media. So we have SEO. So all headlines have to go through SEO. SEO is a bit of a cargo cult, let's be honest. But... As you said, there isn't a fixed rule because all the, the problem with SEO is at least headlines sounding all very similar, but in a way no one really speaks. No one remembers an SEO headline because they all kind of become mulch. So, and this leads to this, like, if you've ever heard of uh, Betteridge's Law of Headlines, which is one of my favorite random online things, which is basically the rule saying that if a headline ends in a question mark, the answer is always no. <laughs> But there isn't a fixed rule for a game. You have to sort of go what works. Mm. So you can't, I wish I could give you like a formula to be like, hey, this is do X, Y, Z and you're good. But no, you have to, and it has to invoke the game. Now, there are some practical concerns I want to quickly touch on, which I want to be boring for a minute, is keeping in mind that how you promote the game and where you're going to sell it will affect what you can call a game. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be pretty on Twitter, you can't use hash marks and you can't use dots. Else Twitter will have a day where it just goes, what the hell is this? <laughs> and kill your tweet. And uh, 
some stores do have rules on what they will stock. I have three games in my catalog that have curses in the title, so I cannot sell those at most major game stores, and I cannot sell them at many conventions. They will not allow them out because they have squares in the title, which you have to make the decision when you're if you want to do that. Is it do I think this will work? And will this harm where I want to get this game in? Now, for me, I'm fine. I'm mostly online, and my audience is my audience is mostly sort of mid twenties to thirties millennial shit posters who are fine with a bit of cursing. But obviously, if you're trying to get this into your local big game store, they're probably not going to want your curse game next to their children's sort of meeple table. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a fair statement. Well, meeple does sound like a curse word if you say it in the right tone of voice. It so. does sound like some really fantastical swearing. A bit <laughs> like Smeg in Red Dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that that's where, like if you, uh, going back to Morkborg, um, that's where you do kind of have to be creative too with how you are marketing the name on your book because the style like the typeface that you're going to use and the images that you're going to use should they should all complement each other so Morkborg lovely book cover it is the the font is what I would describe as um, garage metal band font um like that that like very it's very indie metal yes indie metal band like you know that they're going to be screaming mostly uh, or making pig noises and then there's that creepy skeleton guy on the cover and i look at that and i think i kind of get what this book is about i still kind of had to crack it up i did not know what morkborg was about for the longest time i was like (laughs) i was I was avoiding it for a while. I've ever heard of Mortborg's cover is it would look good airbrush on the side of a van. It it would. It would look really good on like a bass drum or a van. You are exactly correct. That sums up. But a uh, thing when you're doing covers <laughs> is the thing to sort of consider is as uh, this term, the fun term, genre signifiers mm-hmm. is what you're going to be coming back to. Now, D&D is really good at this, but they have an advantage because they're the generic fantasy game. So they obviously are very based on Frank Frazetta's artwork which everyone knows, even if you don't know Frazetta's name, you've seen something he's done. And let's be honest, everyone, including your gran, knows Lord of the Rings. So you can look at that and go, yep, this is a fantasy game Mm -hmm. because they have a whole, not not outside of D&D, these tropes are just well known to people. You know, everyone everyone knows Bilbo. So you can go for, outside of that, you have to get a bit more creative than getting those signifiers in. I actually had this a uh, couple of months ago. I was in a game store. I saw a book on the shelf. It was an RPG. I'm not going to name it because I'm about to insult it a little bit. But it was like a very realistic sort of spaceship in this sort of desolate space asteroid field. Very empty, very blank. And so the ship looks sort of like could be in the next 10 years kind of thing. Early days, hard sci-fi. I like me some early days, hard sci-fi. Open the game. It was very Star Wars. Mm. We're all rebels smuggling from Empire. So now that the game, I want to make this very clear because the person who made that game hears this, is good. But someone who wanted a Star Wars game probably wouldn't see that and go, I, that's rebels fighting an empire with robots. And someone like me who sees that would go, oh, I was hoping that we'd be sort of fixing the oxygen and trying to grow plants, not <laughs> blowing up rebels. So knowing what your genre is and trying to make sure you sort of reflect that I think one of the best games I've seen do that in recent years is Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Yes. <laughs> that picture, 
both it has a built-in reference to Revolutionary Girl Latina, which is one, the best show ever made, and two, probably what most people think was the massive influence on the game. But the style they used is that kind of messy, kind of captures that whole messy emotional sort of whirlwind the game has, the colours capture of the bright over-the-top essence. It is like perfectly, every bit of that cover perfectly captures an element of the game. With like a and little looking, taste of like the Fabio romance cover almost. Yes. You know? And it's a, so everyone who looks at that can probably pick up part of the game based on their own element. So where they come from. Because it's got all these genre signifiers all done in slightly different ways, which is the best way you can do this. Because then you're trying to sell to someone who might not know what you're doing, who so might not know the same signifiers you do, especially when you move out of sort of straight genre pieces. Yeah, there it it is like the saying, as the saying goes, an image is worth a thousand words. And that's really true for the cover. Uh, in going back to the themes, thinking about what are the themes of your game? How can you put that into your your book, whether through the title or or the cover itself? The art, yeah. yeah. And look at other media. All media is doing this in its own way. So do look at how, like, because more Borg, you say, it's, it's effectively an album cover more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Look at comic covers, look at video game covers and see how they're selling you on their concept. One of my favorite things to look at for this is in the anime industry, the idea of key images. Mm-hmm. So before a show comes out, companies will release key images. Sometimes they are from the show. Sometimes they're new art. But they do, they're do they there to sell you on that one shot on what this show is about. Um, my favorite one recently, because they just announced the Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer animated one. And it's perfect for that one. Because it gives Wait. you, it shows you. Lucifer, Lucifer and, the and the Biscuit Hammer. Biscuit Hammer. I thought I heard that it, correctly. I just wanted it's to... It's a weird name. It's not called that in Japan, but it's a good name. But literally, the image is like... So it has two characters. So it's like, hey, so it's a modern setting. This is definitely a shonen piece because we have the shonen hero. Then it has... Oh, there's a weird lizard hanging around. And then this massive hammer in the sky. If you don't know the show, you're going to go, I want in on that. <laughs> like, what's going on in this image? Because it's like normal character. There's definitely a hint that something isn't as you think. And if you know the, the original sorcery, you'll go, oh, these two things are really important. And I would look at those a lot because they're so good at like, giving you in that one, one glance, this is what you need to know about this show. This is why you should put down your money and watch it. I've done this a few times and I know other people have done it as well. If you've got a game that is very clearly inspired by a particular piece of media, but it's kind of like, you know, it's that thing, but with the serial numbers piled off, like it's just like, it's here's a game that you can play that kind of invokes that without it actually being like a licensed mm-hmm. thing um, is, you know, t- take advantage of the thing that you're inspired by and use something from that, that does the job. Um, John, John, uh, John Lavallee has a game that it's in kind of Ashcan format right now, but it's basically Veronica Mars, the RPG, and it's called, we used to be friends. If you know Veronica Mars, you know that's the title of the theme song. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it kicks off every episode. And it very well, it encapsulates the, the feel of the show very, very well. Uh, I mean, I've done it with uh, I mean, Good Strong Hands is the most obvious version. That's, that's a line right out of um, uh, The NeverEnding Story. And even the Little Muppet game that I did, I, I picked Felt, Friendship, and Feelings um, because they both, they all three words start with F and then you, it, in your head, you hopefully, at least some people will subtly be like, you know, F is for this F is for that F is for that. And like with a little, with like, you know, teaching puppet, um, 
television shows that there was a lot of that repetition of like, you know, in order to teach you the alphabet and so forth. So I made a specific choice to like, and once you get inside the book, you'll see that there's things that are like T is for traits, F is for this, F, you know, like, (laughs) um, those those are subtitles. So yeah, like you can, you can build from whatever your source material is or your inspiration especially is that it's, it's a nice balance because while you can do that, you don't want to get too inside baseball. Mm-hmm. Right. So the Veronica Mars one is great because I'm not massively familiar with Veronica Mars, but we used to be friends. I can immediately sort of get a good idea what that is about. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's evocative for the purposes of somebody who hasn't yeah. seen it, Veronica Mars as well. Okay, cool. Okay. And again, it's a, it's a nice bonus for those who do know the source to be like, hey, yep. that's that thing. And yes, it said sometimes just being um, being blunt. I have a came inspired by something which I literally just described a scene. My girlfriend has turned into a car, and we're escaping the city. <laughs> I love I <laughs> love that title so much. It's amazing. It's so it's funny to me. Description of the scene I'm ripping off. It's so, so it's... good. <laughs> Brandon, <laughs> Brandon, just a quick note. This tickled me this past week. Brandon uh, Aiton, who is one half of um, Wet Ink Games, I was commenting online in some social media about code warriors and how it's basically tron meets mad max and he said oh i i get the title now i just got it he's heard (laughs) the name of this game for six months but he just got the title and for those people who don't know it's you know the road warrior code warrior yeah Um, never like oh that just that just you know like so so and you can like you can bury a little you know a little tongue-in-cheek sometimes in there that can be memorable if your game is humorous if there's comedy to the game, like a game, a, a title that has a bit of a joke in it is good. Or or if your game is outrageous, a title that sounds really kind of outrageous is it can be good too. just, you know, just just to get the feel of one of the uh, kind of elements of the game. Yeah, I have I, I have some games that um, I like that I try to do that with. So we have a. Uh, social deduction game that involves a magic eight ball it's called science point to treachery it's supposed <laughs> to be like science point to know um we have a a game where you are doing the melodramatic special episode very special episode of a tv show it's called a very special episode but then we also have the ones that are called like con- contractually obligated to be extreme which is about Vin Diesel and uh, Jason Statham and The Rock, and but it's not really about final. It's not really about Fast and Furious, but um, it just the the power of a little bit of humor in a game title. If your game is supposed to be wacky, uh, is great. Like Starshine again. Uh, my girlfriend is uh, turned into a car, and we are going to escape the city. Did I, did I get all that right? It's a long name, but <laughs> I, and I can I can I can picture the title uh, the cover too because it's the. It's a car racing down a highway, but like almost from the perspective of the car itself. Like I, I, I remember that, and it sticks with me uh, because it is so, yeah, weird. And <laughs> there are deliberate little nods in that to the scene. There's a, there's a sort of an inbred mo- rose motif. Utina was just obsessed with its flower motifs the entire time. So that it was sort of, again, that's that thing. It's a nod. So if you know the source that I'm riffing off there, that's cool. But if not, here's. The basics of the game is you're a car going fast. Uh, I think also just the general thing is workshopping. It, it's boring. It's, it's, it's the least cool answer you could give to a question. But workshopping titles and covers, just showing them to people and going, what do you think? I had, I had a friend convince me. I, I suggested Good Strong Hands 
amongst other titles. I suggested that one kind of like, it's a little too on the nose, isn't it? He's like, yeah, but it's also the best title. Like it, it, over the course of a convention weekend, he convinced me that it was the right title. Um, it, and it can take that. Like if you have a few different ideas, you might need somebody outside to yeah. tell you, oh, this is the one that, oh, clearly this is the one. Like, cause you get as a writer, you know, as a designer and as the inventor of, the, of these, you know, different options for names, you get close to them. Um, and you, you sometimes can't see what the, uh, the, the new user, the new, the person shopping the aisles or looking online is going to see, you don't, you don't see like the thing. Oh, like the, I've, I've had that happen where people would just be like, oh, that's clearly the right title for this game. Like, why did you ever doubt yourself? <laughs> yeah. You, you get that moment where you, your brain has just been saturated with that title you've been thinking about, and it does not seem like anything to you anymore. It's, it's like letters. writing a word over and over yeah. again. Yeah. You do get to that point. Yeah, so just showing these things off is great. And then, yeah, experimenting with different covers to see what kind of works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, covers. So, Let's talk covers a little bit. Oh, yeah. Again, I'm going to go back to genre signifiers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think a big thing to remember is, especially if you're online, your covers got to work in different sizes. So sometimes be careful because a busy cover can look like absolute ass when rendered on a mobile phone because it's tiny and small. Yeah, mm-hmm. if it's a cover that's too complex, if you're selling primarily online, a, a simpler cover is probably better yeah, because the just, image the image will be more discernible on a small, on a thumbnail, on a regular computer, it will be more discernible on a phone or a tablet. Just look at it on every device you can, basically. Mm-hmm. Because obviously how things handle colors is also a, these the colors and how certain sites handle transparency effects and all this. Mm-hmm. All the ones I've made a really nice cover, put it into the itch and there's come out and looks awful like oh well back to the drawing board i mean i've i've made choices um on some of my covers based off of my very first game's cover and um what somebody told me about uh the reception of that game at gen con the first year it was at on the shelves at gen con they said people would walk past these this wall of like mostly dark covers dark colors, jewel tones, browns, blacks, grays, um, and go to Murders and Acquisitions, which is very light. There's a lot of light colors to it. There's like off-whites and off, like bluish white and, um, you know, some, some brighter colors um, on, the, on the front. And because it jumps out. If, that's, if you're going to be putting a game, if, like I'm not putting it in stores where it's going to be buried on a store shelf and I'm all, gonna, all it's going to be this spine. It's going to be in some stores here and there, maybe, hopefully. But it's like my, my big selling point is, making it simple enough that it'll read on the screen and that I honestly want it to be something that people will notice when you see the face of it at a convention. Um, Die Laughing, despite it being an incredibly bloody game, has a white cover with a bit of red, um, of blood red, because that book jumps off the shelf. That was designed, I, when, I, when I talked to Todd Crapper about designing it, I said, I want something. And I, I told him about my encounter, about like having these other covers. Um, and he said, like, I want something that's going to be eye-popping it's going to jump off the shelf people are going to look at it and go that's different than everything else around it and they'll, they'll be intrigued perhaps to just take a quick look at it might not be the game for them but i got them to pick it up yeah i i would recommend going on to like drive through rpg and looking through the new games and seeing because color trends are a thing in games especially like genre specific games and they can come and go um, and you don't necessarily want your game to blend in with the sea of other games that are very similar. You do want to catch their eye while at the same time being genre appropriate. So looking through and seeing like, yeah, it looks like 
there are five games that were released this year that have a green cover or that that have this even this genre touch point on it um or my game is kind of similar to this one i don't want my cover to look the same like really doing a little bit of research ahead of time and being prepared to kill a darling of yours if you're really attached to something if it has been overdone um cliches do exist on covers the means of magic cover is almost i mean it is kind of cliche uh the the at least our current promo our promo of it is um but we try to pick at least different colors for it yep and that that like fuchsia pink really jumps Mm -hmm. like i immediately like like you can't help but see that like take a look at all what's out there um like just generally speaking fantasy games be careful about the same old monsters be careful about uh the same old color schemes which do tend to be darker colors Mm -hmm. um Especially if, I mean, if you're doing a fantasy game that's kind of lighthearted and fun, let the cover be lighthearted and fun and use a wacky monster. That'll jump off the, off the, off the shelf um, and, and off the, the webpage too when it's like listed with the other fantasy titles. Um, sci-fi stuff, like, boy, sci-fi sure does love back, you know, black star drops. <laughs> yeah. A Starfields, um, you know, a Starfield with a, with a little bit of a planet on it and or a spaceship on it. Like that's a lot of sci-fi. There's a lot, plenty of sci-fi games that do that. Maybe you're... Maybe your cool spaceship is set against the backdrop of mostly a planet that's not black with a star field. Like you, you've got black in space and star field around the planet, but then you've got this cool planet that's got some cool color. Um, superhero games. Whew. Primary colors. Big blocks of them. Watch out. You're going to get lost <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the big, bold primary colors. Um, capers, not a traditional superhero game specifically stayed away from primary colors even though it's depicting superheroes doing things um yeah so i mean like give it give some thought to what the game is give some thought mm-hmm. to what it's going to be kind of compared to be up against to to, to try to find something that you know is gonna and, and if you're doing digital stuff you can change it as um, i say don't, don't <laughs> tell anyone this this is a pro seeker but yeah if the cover isn't working just just uh just change it and sometimes that that's how you can and if you're and you if can, and if you're yeah. doing if and if you're doing if you're if you're doing an offset print run you're kind of stuck with those books for a while but if you do print on demand stuff you can change it even if you're stocking 10 20 books to take to a convention once those are sold out you can change it mix it up or sell them as a li- <laughs> no don't don't <laughs> lie don't lie and say that they're limited edition but i mean they technically are well if somebody guess, comes yeah. yeah if somebody comes along if somebody comes along later and says well you, you changed the cover and it's like yeah you got the uh, um what's not the the, 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 collect, the the collector's edition or you know like only a handful of people only 40 of those were made uh, or if that's a problem just lean in and whisper very quietly <laughs> to them it does that and i don't know how to stop it <laughs> <laughs> oh, there have been times where i have rushed to the comic store on a wednesday to make sure i get the first cover of of a comic because uh, i know that next week it'll be a different one. Oh um, yeah variant covers are big business in the comic industry man mm-hmm. they go for a lot of money yes i i am still very upset that i have i i had all original of of a, of a run of moon knight at all the original color covers but i have one variant cover in there and i wanted i wanted the real one i'm i'm on the i'm on the lookout for it i will pay money for it it's moon nuts a lot of money i'm thinking and there's a, there's a whole set of rules too we, we can't really get into that right now as far as, as far as cover design this is more of a graphic design kind of thing but give some thought to like there's the full wrap cover 
which is to say you've got an image that starts on the front, goes across the spine and across the back of the, the book. Like which there's, cool. there's kind of, there's, it can be very, very cool. And there's, there's sort of rules to that kind of a cover because you have to leave the right kind of space. The illustrator has to create, create the cover in such a way that there is space for you to put the title and the, the byline and the blurb on the back without um, obscuring too much of uh, the, the cool illustration part that's telling the story of what the game is about. Um, and also being careful about like how much space you have on the spine and how big your title is and all that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, but there's, there's options for, you know, there's plenty of games out there that do kind of the framed cover where there's like a block color. That's like, it makes, makes like a frame. There might be a frame element to it as well, where you've got a, like a slightly smaller, um, uh, 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 illustration that's kind of in a frame of some other color. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that, that frame color kind of goes around the back and it leaves you a lot more option of, as far as space on the back of the book for your, a lot of my, a lot of my games have that. Although um, I've, I've um, definitely on to, there's going to be a, a wrap, full wrap color, color, full wrap cover for one of the games coming up. And I'm starting to get nervous about it already because okay. there are rules to how you can create that thing. Um, but, but I think, I think, my, I think my artist will be okay with it. I think he's dealt with that stuff. If I can quite touch on two sort of, random points for we uh one i'd say uh, don't feel if you're new that you have to be spending thousands of dollars on custom artwork I, I see so many sort of newer devs coming like oh i need to find an artist and pay for a cover if you're just starting out and you don't have the money you can go simple and it works you can use if like if you think through you can use stock and have a fine time with it mm -hmm. don't feel the need sort of spend hundreds if you can support artists do it support artists is great but obviously for a new dev and you're just throwing something out there you're not gonna be able to do that so yeah like i said die laughing with is very simple but it's very effective look at undertale the biggest game of the last what 15 20 years was just the font mm -hmm. via one very well picked asset it immediately gives you this hint of it's fantasy but a bit weird like you can do that don't feel the need that you have to be spending money you don't have to get the perfect cover. You'll have to be creative, but you can do it. And on the second point, just to note, both with titles and covers, do do a check for two things. One, the name isn't owned. Yes. And two, make sure there are no unfortunate implications. I know people who have fallen into this and with the best intentions, you can come up with a phrase or a word that is used by a company already or is used for something terrible, or your stock image can have a Coke logo in it and they come break your kneecaps. So just look at your images and look at your time. Just do a bit of Googling just to make sure. It's better to know in advance than have to deal with the fire when you do it by accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, all, of, all of my games up until Moonpunk, I, we didn't commission any artwork whatsoever. Moonpunk was the first game we commissioned artwork for. Everything else we had either used and manipulated stock images or done ourselves. Um, but then our cover for Moonpunk, on it, like here, here is the first time I'm saying this on a podcast or out loud. Alex <laughs> made it the day that we sent it into the press. Because <laughs> we weren't satisfied with what we had, so we changed it very, very last minute. But it was, it's a NASA stock image that we photo manipulated to make it look like a retro sci-fi cover. We put a moon in the background. We put an anarchist A on this on the astronaut's helmet. Done. <laughs> and that's all we needed. And it, and, and it, it does works. the job yeah. and it didn't cost a bunch of money. No, it didn't. 
Uh, well, this has been a lot. We can talk about, obviously we can talk about this forever. Um, but we can't also because of the limitations of time and space. So <laughs> Starshine, thank you so much for coming uh, and being on our show again. Uh, would you like to plug your pluggables? Yeah. Um, I have stuff. You can trade money for this stuff. I recommend it because it means I can eat. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Starshine Scrib or find me at starshinescribbles.itch.io where you can find all of my games all presented to you nicely. And there should be a new one coming out at some point. <laughs> January's been mental. But the last game I have on there is a uh, called uh, I, All I Want for Christmas is to Get Out of This Fucking Mall. And it's I think I can safely <laughs> say it is the only game with a Mariah Carey-based resolution mechanic. <laughs> wow. And that is a perfect encapsulation of everything we've just talked about. Thanks again for being here. Um, More than welcome. You can find me on Twitter right at Joska. You can find my games at wannabegames.com or on DriveThruRPG or on itch.io, all under Wannabe Games. And yeah, I don't have too much else to plug. Just working on means of magic, getting that out. And I'm at NerdBurgerCraig on Twitter. Uh, the website's DriveThruRPG.com. Um, my website is NerdBurgerGames.com. You can go to DriveThruRPG. Um, also, I, uh, if this comes out on a Thursday, if all is well, this is the last day of felt friendship and feelings. So you can get your puppet person action on and uh, and share your dice and tell a, a lovely story where your puppet people go on an adventure together. Yay. Um, thank you to Steph Sex for our intro and outro music, Avel, which was licensed under Creative Commons. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye.